Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Today we're going to cover an article on the difficult airway with Skylar Lenz, an EM critical care physician and expert in airway management. We're talking severe metabolic acidosis and shock and hypotension in part one. And in part two, we're going to cover obstructive lung disease, right heart disease, and hypoxemia. Without further ado, let's get to it. First pass is always the priority in any patient that we approach for intubation. But there are several physiologic challenges we also have to think about. And these people will do worse if you don't get the intubation on the first pass. The ones that come to mind, the ones that I really worry about are those with hypoxemia, hypotension, and severe metabolic acidosis. And this is a great point. The incidence of peri-intubation cardiac arrest is as high as 1 in 25 emergency airways in one study. Post-intubation hypotension is even more common, occurring as frequently as 25% and it's associated with increased mortality. But many of these pre-intubation risks for decompensation can be recognized and even prevented with appropriate preparation and patient evaluation. So a metabolic acidosis puts patients at high risk for complication. The major pitfall here is not accounting for the respiratory compensation of a metabolic acidosis and not anticipating the impending respiratory failure from your patient's fatigue not being able to keep up with that compensation on their own. So first, it's best to avoid intubation if at all possible, but sometimes you'll be pushed to do it. If they're unable to keep up, they're fatiguing, if their mental status worsens, and they can't protect their airway. And I should point out, waiting until respiratory failure is bad. We don't want to wait until the point that these patients fail. We want to catch them before that and intervene at the right time. One thing that you can use to help is end tidal CO2. So end tidal CO2 can help you monitor your patient to see how they're compensating. If that end tidal CO2 starts to climb, you might be able to intervene early with non-invasive positive pressure to buy yourself some time so that you can correct the underlying cause. Say if it's DKA, maybe that'll buy you just enough time for the insulin, the fluids, and all to kick in so that you can get your patient through that without having to intubate them. But if your patient starts fatiguing, they start looking worse, if their end tidal CO2 starts to climb, you may have to intubate them and put them on the ventilator. These are really important points in managing the patient with metabolic acidemia. Now, some people may reach for sodium bicarb, but its use is really controversial. Aside from bicarbonate losses in like renal tubular acidosis or diarrhea, sodium bicarb administration typically doesn't correct the underlying cause of the acidosis. Its administration may raise serum bicarbonate levels, but there really is no proven clinical benefit in the literature to date. Your pearl is that you need to treat the underlying cause of the acidosis while frequently looking for impending respiratory failure. Don't immediately reach for sodium bicarb because there's no proven clinical benefit. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think treating the underlying cause is the best thing that you can do here. And if you're pushed to intubate them, the other pitfall here is allowing for too much apnea during the induction period. The longer that apneic period is, the pH is going to drop, the CO2 is going to rise, and your patient may do worse or decompensate. One thing you can try is a sedation-only intubation. You can use ketamine without a paralytic so that your patient continues to breathe as you attempt the intubation. We're not as familiar with that as emergency physicians as we are rapid sequence intubation with a paralytic, but I'll point out in airway registry data, this is successful almost three-quarters of the time with sedation-only. Now, if you use RSI, the thing that I think most of us are most familiar with, you really have to minimize that apneic time. One thing you can do is use bag valve mask ventilation throughout the induction period as your patient starts to hypoventilate or become apneic. 
and you can use bag valve mask ventilation safely in those that are not a high aspiration risk. You just have to be careful. Use a slow rate, use just enough to cause chest rise, and not overdo it. These are really important points. So think about minimizing the apneic time during induction by bag valve mass ventilation, and also think about an awake intubation with topical anesthetics. I'm not as comfortable using sedation-only intubation, but it is a tool. Our next pitfall is inappropriate ventilator settings to match the pre-intubation respiratory compensation these patients demonstrate. Yeah, that's right. So if you intubate someone who's compensating on their own, it's almost impossible to match the pre-intubation minute ventilation, but you have to do the best you can. One thing that I try to do is I set a respiratory rate of at least 30. Now the caveat here is if the patient has obstructive lung disease like an asthmatic or somebody with severe COPD, you may not be able to do that high of a respiratory rate. But the good news is most people, like say, again, DKA, you should be able to get a respiratory rate of 30 pretty safely. And I'll set the tidal volume a bit higher. So I'm not going to do 6 mLs per kilo in these folks. I'm going to use more like 8 mLs per kilo of ideal body weight to maintain that minute ventilation. End tidal CO2, again, can help here. If you know what the end tidal CO2 was pre-intubation, you can try to match that post-intubation right after you confirm the endotracheal tube. You can see what your end tidal CO2 is and get an idea of how you're doing. The next thing you can do is check a blood gas. You should check a blood gas shortly after intubation. Venous or arterial, either one should be fine. And what you're looking for is the pH to make sure that you're keeping up with the respiratory compensation. You can target the PaCO2 pre-intubation, or you can get more technical about it and use Winter's formula or a simplified formula to target a PaCO2 that equals the serum bicarb plus 15. This will allow you to give adequate compensation for the metabolic acidosis. There are a lot of different mechanical ventilator strategies we can use after intubation. Some advocate for a pressure support ventilation after the sedation and neuromuscular blockade medications have been metabolized. But in the ED, this really isn't an option for us. Most centers will use something like an assist control ventilation with a prescribed tidal volume or a pressure. The recommended approach is to deliver a guaranteed minute ventilation by setting a respiratory rate and a starting tidal volume of 8 milliliters per kilogram in an assist control type mode. Your pearl, though, is that you need to match at least the pre-intubation respiratory rate to approximate their minute ventilation to the post-intubation respiratory rate while looking for air trapping. Most patients will tolerate a respiratory rate up to 30 breaths per minute. Keep in mind that you need to check a blood gas after intubation to ensure the pH has not decreased further. So post-intubation hypotension is common and can occur up in as high as one quarter of emergently intubated patients. Some other studies also suggest one thing that you can use to risk stratify your patient is the shock index, the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. Those with a shock index of above 0.8 to 0.9, and that's one of the better predictors that we have that's shown across many studies to predict post-intubation cardiac arrest and post-intubation hypotension. In one case series, there was a high rate of cardiac arrest up to as high as 2% or up to 4.2% of emergency intubations. This is something we need to prevent as emergency physicians. There's very high risk of morbidity and mortality in those that arrest post-intubation. We should be ready to anticipate it and to treat it ahead of time. It's kind of scary how often we'll see post-intubation hypotension, and there are a lot of contributors to post-intubation cardiovascular collapse. Things like the severity of the underlying illness, age, hypoxemia, the induction agent, and the dose, 
and even the hemodynamic consequences of positive pressure ventilation. Your pearl is that post-intubation hypotension is common, and it's associated with adverse outcomes. A shock index of greater than 0.8 and any preceding hypotension are predictors of hemodynamic compromise and cardiac arrest, and we need to manage these prior to induction and intubation. And the big pitfall here to consider is you have to resuscitate prior to induction and intubation. You have to take that time to stabilize your patient first, to get them through that procedure, and to get them safely on the ventilator. So if your patient has that shock index that we're talking about greater than 0.8, or if they're hypotensive already, you need to correct that first. You can use fluids if you think that your patient is hypovolemic. There was an ICU study that looked at empiric fluid boluses, a 500 ml fluid bolus, and that didn't help in all comers in an ICU population. But if you think your patient is hypovolemic, then by all means, give them fluids before, because that positive pressure is only going to exacerbate the decreased preload and reduce the cardiac output. The other thing you can do is just get them started on vasopressors. This is my preference. Rather than trying to mix push-dose pressors or decide which one, if my patient has a shock index that's high, if their blood pressure is low, I just start an infusion of norepinephrine to normalize their blood pressure before I ever push induction medications. And for me, this keeps it simple. It reduces the dosing errors that push-dose pressors are prone to. And for me, I think norepinephrine is the one to use here because it gives both alpha vasoconstriction and also some beta-1 effects to increase the cardiac output. I worry a little bit about phenylephrine, particularly if my patient has a low cardiac output or myocardial ischemia. Phenylephrine can make this worse. These are great points. So volume resuscitation and definitely a vasopressor infusion are going to help you. If you have time, perform a point-of-care ultrasound to look at their volume status and cardiac function. These findings on the ultrasound can help you determine volume resuscitation and the vasopressor choice. Also utilize a pre-intubation checklist that incorporates management of hypotension. Our next pitfall is using induction agents or inappropriate doses that worsen or even cause hypotension. Yeah, that's right. And those that you anticipate are going to have hemodynamic instability, or if they already have hemodynamic instability, you have to choose both the right drug and the right dose in the right patient. So for me, it's usually ketamine or atomidate. Those are going to be the medications that give me the smoothest induction with less hypotension. Propofol is prone to cause more hypotension, so I'm usually staying away from that. Now the thing to remember is no matter what agent you use, you're going to decrease the sympathetic drive that may be maintaining your patient's blood pressure. So once you push that induction agent, you take away the endogenous catecholamines and can cause hypotension, even in the most hemodynamically neutral medications. So you might have to reduce the dose. And you might have to reduce the dose as much as 25 to 50% of what you would give a normal, healthy patient. And you have to balance this with the risk of awareness. One strategy is you could do incremental dosing of medication, so you could give your patient a little bit of ketamine to see if they're in a good spot before pushing your paralytic medication, and give a little more if they're still awake until you get that right dose without causing too much hypotension or worsening hemodynamic instability. So what you're telling me is that I need to anticipate and avoid post-intubation hypotension with appropriately dosed induction agents. Keep in mind to decrease the dose of the induction agent to probably 25% of your normal dosing. Thanks for joining us today for part one on severe metabolic acidosis and shock. Remember, those with a severe metabolic acidosis require maintenance of their minute ventilation 
to prevent a sudden deterioration in pH. In the case of shock and hypotension, resuscitate prior to induction and keep in mind the shock index of greater than 0.8, which predicts post-intubation hypotension. Stay tuned for part two, where we're covering obstructive lung disease, right heart disease, and hypoxemia.